The Wheel of Crime podcast contains explicit and graphic material, which may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In other words, if you're offended by words and graphic explanations of murder, then why the hell are you even listening? Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you you would not have withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Thanks for joining me on the second episode of the Wheel of Crime podcast. Today's episode is about 
religiously motivated crimes or God made me do it. The wheel has spoken. I just want to put out a little disclaimer right now. If you are disturbed by descriptions of death involving children, please turn back now. I can't make that any more clear because we're going to get into child deaths in this episode. Let's get right into it. So today's cases are very similar, but a little different. The first one we're going to talk about is Dina Schlosser. And the next one is Andrea Yates. And the reason why I chose to do these two together is because they were roommates, uh, believe it or not. I thought that was pretty fascinating. All right, so let's let's go ahead and dive right in. So this first case, Dina Schlosser, um, it's always stuck out to me. I can remember the first time I heard about it, and I got this really sick feeling. Um, I was pregnant with my first son, and I couldn't imagine doing to him what Dina did to his, did to her daughter. Okay, so as is my tendency, I end up putting myself in the shoes of not only the assailant, but the victim, almost like at the same time. So I have to wonder what it would have been like for this mother looking down at her little baby and cutting her arms off in her crib. That's what she did. She cut the arms off of her child. So like what the hell was going through her head? What was it like for Maggie? And she That's the baby. She was just an innocent little victim in all of this. Um, what was it like for her to look up and at the mother that she trusts almost instinctively? The person that brought her into this world knowing, well, I don't know if she's knowing it, but th th this person is supposed to protect her, but ended up becoming her murderer. What was it like for her looking up from her crib and feeling that horrific pain while seeing her mother's face? You know, one by one, her limbs were sawed off of her body. Sawed off of her body. Some reports say sliced, but let's be really honest. You can't slice through a joint like that. You would have to twist it and pull it out of its socket in order for it to be separate from the body, which is how they found her. Um, and, and, you know, ever since I spun that fucking wheel, that's all I can think about is this case. Every morning I wake up and that's the first thought I have is how did she get those arms off? I, I know that's a sick thought. That's a sick, <laughs> it's a sick thought and I hate even admitting it, but it's the truth. Anyway, let's, let's just get right to the story. Okay, so on the morning of November 24th, 2004, a man named John Schlosser received a call from his wife, Dina, who told him that she had killed their third and youngest daughter, Margaret, who was only 11 months old. Now, knowing that his wife was mentally unstable, he called the older girl's daycare. It's not clear as to why he didn't call 911 himself. I think he just thought it was a joke or something. But anyway, uh, someone from the daycare ended up calling uh, 911 to report what John had communicated with them. The 911 operator called the Schlosser home and spoke with Dina and asked her if there was an emergency, to which she calmly says, yes. The operator can hear the Christian hymn, He Touched Me, playing airily in the background. Every time I think about that song or hear it, I, I hear it in my head for days afterwards. I can't imagine hearing that and then knowing that this was happening, what that 911 operator was thinking. So anyway, when, when asked what happened, she told the operator that she'd cut off the, the arms of her daughter. And when the police arrived, they found Dina sitting in a chair, still holding the bloody knife, and they had to gently coax it away from her. She had a huge gash in her arms because God told her to cut off the arms of her baby and then herself. She never really gives a reason why, at least not to the media. 
Um, the police found Maggie uh, in her crib. Just everything was soaked with blood, uh, dismembered. Uh, so hours later, Dina was heard by police chanting, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. The attack was later deemed a religious frenzy. Now, the encyclopedia.com states that a frenzy is a mental derangement which could pass into or is a wild agitation of mind. So you couple that with frenzy. It is a religious mental derangement or a mental derangement influenced by religion. It's not really clear. Anyway, so what would make a woman do this to her baby? What started Dina on this track to murdering her daughter in such a painful and gruesome manner? Some say it was a psychotic break, but if we really look into her past, we could see her on this train long before the event. But then again, hindsight really is 2020, isn't it? In order to understand what happened in 2004, we need to go back to her childhood and understand the woman who committed such a brutal act. There isn't a lot of information about her past, but we do know that when Dina Latner, that's her maiden name, uh, was eight years old, she was diagnosed with hydrocephalus. Now, hydrocephalus is a condition on the brain. Uh, it's like a buildup of fluid in the ventricles deep within the brain. And the excess fluid increases the size of the cavities and puts pressure on the brain. Um, and in some case, in cases of children born in it, with this condition, it can cause the head to swell to an increased size. Sometimes it can cause different uh, effects depending on the person. Uh, some people it can cause delusions. Some people it causes uh, mental retardation. Some people it causes, you know, just different things. Not everybody with this disorder does these things. It just depends on the person. Okay, so uh, in... In all in all, she ended up having to have eight surgeries to implant shunts in her brain to drain the fluid and also in her heart and abdomen before she was 13. So the shunt in the brain goes to the abdomen, which drains the fluid into the belly, and then she probably had to have another shunt to drain from the belly out into like a bag or something. So uh, not much else is known about her until she graduates from Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York with a degree in psychology, ironically. Before graduating, she meets a man named John Schlosser. She graduates, he doesn't. They eventually marry and move to Texas. Now here's what's really fucked up. Even though she's got the college degree and he didn't, he wouldn't allow her to work. Most people who knew them and talked to the press mentioned that John was a narcissistic kind of man and in fact was diagnosed with such after the trial. He didn't give much credence to her mental health because of their strict religious beliefs. So they came from like this it's called Water Life Church in Plano, Texas. Um, but this preacher is very kind of fire and brimstone. Um, he believes that mental illness is the devil. And it's demonic. Everything is demonic with this guy. So they end up with three children. By From all the accounts that I was able to research, her prenatal psychosis really took off after the birth of Maggie. Uh, though there were episodes beforehand. She attempted suicide the day after Maggie was born and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder with psychotic features. She had been investigated by CPS earlier in the year, probably when she was pregnant with Maggie, as she was born in January of 2004. And they said that she couldn't be alone with her children at this time. There's no indication as to why. They don't say what she did. But anyway, John's sister ended up coming to live with them until that order was lifted. So not long after Maggie was born, uh, she honestly believed that, sh that Maggie was destined to marry Doyle Davidson, who was a veterinarian turned preacher at the Water of Life Church in Plano, Texas. Um, like I said, this guy was kind of 
fruity about a lot of things and very, very, I, I guess the negative side of preaching. You've got positive preachers. You've got negative preachers. He was more negative because he was all fire and brimstone. Everything you do is a sin. Everything's horrible. Repent. Repent. You're a horrible woman. That kind of thing. Um, the day before she killed her baby, she told her husband that she wanted to give Margaret to Davidson. Now, later that day, John ended up spanking Dina in front of their children with a wooden spoon. Now, whether or not this caused the tragedy that ended up occurring, that's not really clear. But for him to hit her in front of the kids after confession of her psychosis, that makes one thing clear. He didn't seem concerned about her mental state whatsoever and the eventual effect it would have on his daughters. Because it would affect his daughters. What eventually became the, quote, catalyst on record for this attack came in the form of a news report about a lion attacking a child and mauling him to death. So in Dina's mind, it clicked that this was the sign of the, uh, the, uh, the words are hurt. The, in Dina's mind, this was the sign of the coming apocalypse. So she said in that moment, she heard the voice of God demanding her to remove Maggie's arms and then her own. Ultimately, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity and committed to the North Texas State Hospital and there is where she became the roommate of Andrea Yates who had drowned her five children in a bathtub about three years prior. Now even though she was prescribed the antipsychotic drugs, her pastor said that mental illness of course was demonic um, to which he had testified to that at trial. Now because of this belief it caused her husband to not regularly buy her medication she so desperately needed. It would save them money and she didn't really need it. She's really, she's probably faking it, you know, that kind of stuff. So after the trial, the public outcry would cause Doyle Davidson's television ministry to be canceled. Um, John would be given custody of his children with the condition that his sister live with the family and that he complete parenting classes. After complying with the court, he regained custody of his remaining daughters and filed for divorce from Dina, and she was barred from ever seeing him or her children again. She ends up getting out around 2010 goes back in a couple times um, now around 2012 they find out that Dina is working in a Walmart in Texas they meaning a Dallas TV station their local I don't know the the call letters for it but anyway they were investigating her as a like a where are they now piece after finding out that she was working there under her maiden name she was fired now the manager stated that they did background checks on her but because she wasn't convicted of a felony it never came back on the report so you ha we kind of have to look at how the system failed Dina at this point. They knew that she had postpartum psychosis. They knew this. They knew that she needed medication, but because of her religious beliefs, they weren't taking them regularly or they weren't buying them regularly. So this interferes in her biological functioning because of, because of having the children, her hormones dipping the way they did. And who else, I mean, who knows what else it could what else could have contributed to it um but anyway it, it's just it's a tragic case and it's something that sticks in, out in my head and it always has because i can't i can't imagine being either one of those the victim or the the murderer all right so on to the next one but first a word from our sponsor yay So the next case we're going to talk about is Andrea Yates. Most true crime enthusiasts already know about Andrea, but in case you don't, we're going to go into the background a little bit. On June 20th, 2001, Andrea took her five children and one by one drowned them in a bathtub in their home in Houston, Texas. 
This sparked a national outrage and everyone quickly rushed to demonize Andrea without realizing there was much, much more underneath the tip of this iceberg. So we're gonna dive right into this story. Much of what you're gonna hear here was taken from a documentary called A Mother's Madness, which you can find on YouTube if you wanna check it out. I recommend it, it was very good. Andrea's family and friends relate the story of her normal upbringing with no mental issues that they could see. Born Andrea Kennedy, she was a bright student and the type of friend almost anyone would want. She graduated from high school and went on to get her nursing degree. From what her friends say, she wasn't the kind of girl who had a lot of boyfriends and in fact may not have dated anyone seriously until she met her future husband, Rusty. They had noticed each other at the apartment complex where they lived and pretty soon Andrea asked him out. Soon they were married and Rusty said in an interview that Andrea was very uptight about sex and wouldn't even undress in front of him. But before their first wedding anniversary, they were pregnant with their first child, Noah. They had discussed her going back to work and while her friends and family say that she wanted to go back to work, Rusty says that she told him that she's a mother now and that's where she needs to be at home with her kid. So it was after the birth of Noah that the first hints of postpartum depression could be seen. She began to have images of knives, impulses of stabbing somebody with a knife, particularly the baby. And she was afraid of this, but she hid it behind her perfect veneer. She wanted to be the perfect wife and mother. Now around this time, she and Rusty began to follow a fire and brimstone preacher named Michael Waranecki, with whom Rusty had gone to college. He had a wife named Rachel, and together they had six children, and they were traveling all over the country um, doing their ministries. And around this time, too, the Yates had two more kids, John and Paul. And also around this time, and everything kind of happened all at once, her father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and his health began to, began to deteriorate. In this documentary, they talked to a man named David de la Isla, who was a former follower of Warnecki. He says that Warren Nicky would say uh, that few made it to heaven because they didn't follow certain tenements of their twisted version of religion exactly. So to Warren Nicky, all women were, quote, Jezebels, and they encouraged their followers to leave the suburbs and their comfortable lives and move to trailer, trailers and mobile homes because people who lived in houses weren't pious enough. They were bad. So they moved from a house to a trailer and eventually would buy a converted Greyhound bus for Warren Eckie. Three kids, two adults, in a Greyhound bus. Rachel Waranecki would send letters to Andrea telling her she was evil, that she was a Jezebel, and she was a daughter of Eve, and that men are the dominant ones. Women serve them because of their wickedness. They also admonished that if a mother doesn't beat her children and rule them with an iron fist, they were bad moms. Now, which is it? If she's a Jezebel, how could she be a good mom? If she's a good, pious mom who beats her kids, how could she be a Jezebel? They were setting Andrea up for failure because with each child, her postpartum depression grew worse. And this type of belief system from which she, glean she was gleaning her spiritual fruit was damaging her already fragile psyche. Pardon me while I shuffle my notes. Soon would come the fourth son, Luke. And it wasn't long after the birth of Luke that she was to have her first mental breakdown. Now here she is, she's juggling three boys, plus nursing Luke, plus having to take care of her father, all while living on a converted bus. She calls Rusty and tells him to come home right away. He rushes home and finds her chewing her fingers, like literally chewing her fingers, not her nails. She's chewing the meat on her fingers. He asks her what's wrong, to which she says, I need help. Rusty has no idea what to do. 
And so he gathers everybody up and he takes the kids and Andrea for a walk on the beach. And remember, this was the late 90s. There wasn't a huge emphasis on mental health at the time, so he really didn't know what to do. Rusty takes her and the kids to her mom's house because he doesn't want to he doesn't want to leave her there alone. Shortly after this, she takes a bunch of her dad's pain pills, overdoses, and nearly dies. They send her to a psych ward, diagnose her with major depressive disorder with psychotic episodes, and put her on Zoloft. But she's forced to leave because her insurance has run out. Not because she was ready to leave, not because they fixed her, but because her insurance ran out. So at this time, her psychiatrist switches her medication to an antipsychotic called Zyprexa, which is used to treat psychotic conditions and mood disorders such as bipolar disorder, which is manic depression as it was known at the time. Here's the kicker, though. Warren Eckie is preaching that medication like this is evil and shouldn't be trusted. So she ends up flushing this expensive medication down the toilet because of this belief. So let's catch up here. Andrea is a mother of four little boys whose father's health is declining because of Alzheimer's. She's one of, so I guess one in 1,000 mothers suffer from psychotic, uh, severe postpartum depression. She's one of these. I shouldn't say psychotic postpartum, I should say severe postpartum depression with psychotic symptoms. Okay, so she's staying with her parents at this time and Rusty walks in on her with a steak knife to her throat, threatening to kill herself because she's having these visions of knives and Satan and saying that the Satan was in her. She had a little bit of Satan in her. So she goes back to the hospital and is given Haldol at this time. This actually does help to loosen the grip of psychosis um, on her and is able, she's able to talk about her visions. Her doctors also notice that she has claw marks on her legs, and she's doing this to keep herself from hurting her or anyone else. They state also that she has major depressive disorder with recurrent psychotic episodes and postpartum depression. They want to do electro, electroshock treatments, but everybody says no at this time. So she was let go, and they continued with the medication and major therapy. So while she's still in the hospital, Andrea's mom calls up Rusty and says, once she's out of the hospital, you get her a house. No more living on a damn bus. So Rusty works on getting her a house, and by the time she gets out, they have a beautiful home in Houston where they can raise their four kids. Her condition improves, and after a few months, she and Rusty decide to have another child. Despite insistent warnings from her psychiatrist and doctors, she stops taking all medications and ends up being pregnant. Rusty compared it this way. This is the craziest way I've ever heard it compared. And you have to... You have to remember, this was back in the 90s, so they didn't put a whole lot of emphasis on this. So he says, um, Rusty compared it this way, if someone offered you a Mercedes-Benz with the stipulation that you would have a flu for two weeks, you could deal with it knowing at the end you have something wonderful. So postpartum depression with psychotic features is like the flu. Hmm. Anyway, November 30th, 2000. They have a baby girl and name her Mary. All their children have biblical names. I think it's cute. By the spring of 2001, her father dies, and Andrea stops talking, and she starts her incessant hair pulling and her rocking. She goes back to the doctor and is released. Two days before the murders occurred, Rusty had taken her to a psychiatrist and told them she was not improving. There were so many warning signs. This woman was slowly unraveling. She's been diagnosed as having severe postpartum psychosis, yet they have another baby. Her father's died. Her father dies. She already sees herself as a piece of shit mom. This was a recipe for disaster. 
they knew her being off her medication was going to send her spiraling. But it's, it's just a flu. So anyway, the morning of June 20th, 2001, Andrea waited for Rusty to go to work. And then one by one, she called her babies into their deaths under the belief that she was saving their souls from not only her sins, but saving them from hell. She called Rusty and told him to come home, and she asked, well, which one of the kids is it? She says, all of them. She calls 911 as well. Let's listen to the 911 call. Now, when they take her out in the squad car, her hair and clothes were still wet. In Texas, there are two criteria one must meet in order to plead insanity. First, there must be a mental disease or defect. And second, must be that the person did not know from right or wrong. Texas has the toughest guidelines for insanity defense. Uh, so the jury was not shown videos of her at the time of her arrest or even before she was medicated. So they ended up seeing her months after the incident and after she'd been medicated, which could have changed everything. Honestly, she didn't believe what she was doing was wrong, but knows that what she did was wrong. Let's listen to the interview and we'll go over this again. What were you trying to accomplish then when you did take your children's lives? So let me say it again. She did not believe she did the wrong thing because of her beliefs, but knows that what she did by killing them was wrong. I know that sounds really confusing, but her in her mind and her beliefs, she believed she was saving them from hell. So how could she have done the wrong thing? Even though in this world she knows that killing them was wrong, but she had a justifiable excuse in her mind. If you actually watch the video of the interview, her eyes are like black. I mean, they're like shark's eyes. And at the end where, where he's asking her, what did you think, you know, that you were saving them from? And she looks at him like, are you fucking kidding me? Hell, I'm saving them from hell. Don't you get it? But anyway, her interpretation of right and wrong was tainted by her spiritual beliefs. The jury and prosecuting attorneys felt that she killed them methodically and because of the order in which she killed the children and because she waited for Rusty to leave that she planned to do this and did it with intent. When she, did try, when she tried to kill herself, she thought she was getting rid of the devil. But because she wasn't able to do that, she thought that sending the kids to heaven um, would spare them hell because she could feel the Satan in her. She had Satan in her. And she felt that at this age, God would still take them up. So anyway, after three weeks of testimony, the jury deliber deliberated for three and a half hours and found her guilty. There's only two outcomes in a trial like this, life or death. So after a 40-minute deliberation, three days after the verdict, they sentenced her to life in prison. She ended up in a psych ward, but was given a new trial eventually. This time she was found not reason or not, not guilty by reason of insanity, and is now in the Caraville, Car Caraville, Caraville State 
uh, state hospital where she is doing better but will remain there for the rest of her life. She has the possibility of going before a review board, but chooses not to do so. She knows what she did was wrong, and she knows she feels she should suffer for it, but she is getting better. She makes craft for charities and never leaves the grounds, and she doesn't want to be released. Now, Rusty ended up remarrying and has a, a son, but they ended up getting divorced in th 2016. I can't imagine a whole lot of women... Um, I don't, I don't imagine that he would be able to trust a whole lot of women after that. I mean, really. He was such a pillar of forgiveness and strength through all of it. He never demonized her. He understood. He was grieving for everybody. His whole family was gone. But those are the two cases that I wanted to talk about, um, primarily because even though God didn't tell Andrea to do it, she was influenced by it. Um, because of her religious beliefs. She felt that she was saving the children from Satan. These are two women who suffered intense postpartum depression with psychotic episodes. The system didn't help them. And granted, this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. So there wasn't, like I said, a whole lot of emphasis on mental health. But when you mix a... I hate to say a bastardized version of religion, but when you mix a negative version of religion or a fanatical version that it focuses mostly on fire and brimstone and evil and blah, blah, blah. when you mix that with your psychosis of postpartum depression, of mental illness, that can lead to really bad, bad things as we see in these two cases. There are millions of other cases out there that we could go into, but anyway, this is what we're going to talk about this week. Thank you all for joining us. I am so glad to see you here, glad to be seen by you, and let's go on to the spin. All right, everybody, it's that time again. Time to spin that wheel. Let's go. And our next episode is going to be about wrestling deaths. That's right. Either those who killed or those who were killed. Join us next time. Hey, y'all. Thanks for joining us for our second episode of the Wheel of Crime podcast. Join us next time when we discuss wrestling deaths. On the podcast, we're going to have special guest Christopher Bilo who runs the Off the Ropes podcast on YouTube. I really hope I didn't say your name wrong, dude. So sorry about that. I made the list. Anyway, thanks, guys. Have a great week, and we'll see you soon. Oh, and don't be a dick. <laughs> Seriously, you guys still here? I really figured you would have left by now. Now get the fuck out!
out of here, man. I got to go back to work.